very good evening to you. I'm Jeff Lucas and welcome to Lucas on Life. And that word, welcome, is what I want to focus on tonight. Here are a few questions that I think all Christians need to consider. Are our churches warm, welcoming places? When people step over the threshold of our church services, meetings, gatherings for the very first time, do we make them feel at home? A recent survey in our community here in northern Colorado unearthed the truth that when people go to a church, the most important thing about it is that there's a welcoming atmosphere. And that happens not just when we have excellent, smiling volunteers who extend a welcome, but where a genuinely welcoming culture has been developed, a culture that we can all contribute to. I became a Christian at the tender age of 17, and I can't remember which songs they sang in church that night, and frankly, I have no idea what the minister preached about. But I remember very clearly the wonderful welcome that this confused teenager received. In fact, I'm going to share a little about that evening with you during this program. So tonight, again, welcome to the show, and let's think about welcome. I won't name it in case you live there and put a contract on my life as a result of hearing this. It's enough to say that the village is somewhere in Dorset. It's picture postcard high street flanked with Victorian street lamps and beautiful Purbeck stone cottages make it the stuff of chocolate box lids. We were there for a month in a rented cottage, a cosy 300-year-old nest where we would celebrate Christmas and I would finish the book that I was working on. Bliss, perhaps. Our first step was to go out to the pub, a helpful 20 yards from our cottage. Reassuringly old, it looked loaded with character and charm, but there was something of an icebox within. I pushed on the great ironclad door, my heart tinged with the vague, irrational anxiety that I usually feel when I enter somewhere unfamiliar. But my angst was justified, Suddenly, I felt the trauma of not belonging, not being welcome. The bar area was small, one of a series of very tiny rooms, and locals lined the walls, filling every seat, chattering happily back and forth, the ping-pong of life in a small village. Everyone seemed to know everyone. We, of course, knew no one. We sauntered hopefully in all smiles and nods of greeting, and immediately everything went very quiet. The happy conversational buzz silenced, the chilly quiet deafening. Suddenly, the bar area where we stood, blocking their view of each other and effectively preventing any further chat until we just got out of the way, turned into a stage with us, the unwelcome fools, stranded upon it. I stammered my order, conscious of my hushed audience, their eyes boring holes in my back. A stammered attempt at a warm comment to the lady behind the bar was rejected with a sniff, so we fled with our drinks to the stark, empty little room next door. Tourists were apparently on the same level in the food chain as rodents, or so it felt. We sipped our drinks and organised an impromptu escape committee. We are mad idiots, and so, undeterred, we ventured back to the desolate pub the next night. Frosty, the lady behind the bar, refused to give the barest hint of recognition that she'd ever clapped eyes on us before. Our good evening was greeted with a yes. 
Never mind the pleasantries, just get on with your order. One of us, in a rash suicidal gesture, decided to offer a compliment. This is a very nice pub, he chortled. She looked up slowly from her pouring, eyes narrowed and volleyed back our warm comment like an unwanted hand grenade. Well, we're not going to change it. Change it? Who implied that any amendments or revisions were needed? This was a nice pub. I said N-I-C-E, nice. Hello? Utterly defeated, we retreated again to the drafty little room of the night before. All right, let's be charitable. Perhaps these folks get utterly fed up with camera-toting noisy tourists messing up their summers and see their winter as a needed breather, a holiday from holidaymakers. So we decided to visit the church for their midnight Christmas service. We entered the glorious old building, all dressed up as it was in the beautiful candlelit bunting of the season, warm and welcoming. Heads craned around as we accepted our hymn books, walking exhibit A's now. We needed to sit down somewhere, anywhere, quickly. There were seats, close and vacant, and our bottoms were just about to fill them when a smartly dressed man seated in the row behind the empty seats leaned forward, waving his hands, a look of horror in his eyes. Then I realised with shame that we were taking seats reserved for the stewards who would collect the offering. I muttered a flustered apology to the flapping seat sentry and herded the three of us to some safer wooden chairs at the side of the nave. Flushed with shame, I tried to settle my skipping heart down and just focus on worship. Before long, I felt glad that we had braved the seat debacle. The service itself was rich and the liturgy heartfelt. These people certainly sang their hearts out. All was going swimmingly until the sermon. The minister came quite close to actually recognising that he was talking to real live human beings rather than delivering a scripted homily to the ancient rafters but not close enough. I shifted uncomfortably in my seat, trying to be uncritical, but frustrated by the millions of miles that there seemed to be between priest and people, somewhat angry at the fact that this could mean a perception that there were light years between them and God. On the way out, we shook the priest's hand, and he wished us a rather cold-blooded Merry Christmas. I wanted to pause for a moment with this man, to engage, to ask a question, but I realised that the handshake he gave me was one of those swing-you-pass-me-just-keep-moving mechanisms. We stepped out into the dark, the blinking fairy lights in the church porch, an illusion of cheerier sanctuary that had been our experience. But come on, let's break out the charity again. The stewards did need their reserved seats. The seat traffic controller was probably trying to spare us embarrassment as unwitting chair squatters. And that priest, well, he was probably at the end of a dozen Christmassy services and was looking forward to a fireside sherry with his wife. But I couldn't help thinking what people who don't know God or church protocol would have made of it all. Would they have determined never to darken the old doors of that church again, feeling so unwelcome? And more tragically, could they have felt that they'd never quite fit in with God either? But all was not lost. The village grocery shop, which also doubled as a post office, turned out to be a haven of delights, and not only because of its fresh, crusty rolls and crisp newspapers that looked freshly ironed and starched. The owner was anything but stiff, and 
He greeted us like old friends and chatted happily about village life. One morning, his shop was loaded with people fussing around the heaving shelves and tiny aisles. I asked him about a coastal walk and the whole store chimed in, a chorus of help and kindness, not a hint of raised eyebrows or a not-more-tourist attitude from them, just laughter, welcome, directions and a jaunty chat. I closed the door behind me, a little ding of its attached bell, a vague connection to yesteryear. And needing to buy absolutely nothing at all, I suddenly wanted to go back inside again and rejoin the party. The grocer, who is also a postmaster, must be very busy. But I wonder if he could possibly take on running a pub and a church as well. We're thinking about welcome. I was in Israel. Only in this bizarre, wonderful and hugely confusing country would one see a sign banning unauthorised communion taking, a pitcher of bread and wine with a circle with a line drawn through it in the style of a no-smoking warning. The Israeli authorities were obviously worried about tourists slipping off for a crafty time of sacramental fellowship on so-called holy sites without proper leadership. So in some places, it's declared illegal to take communion. Imagine the police stopping a dodgy-looking pilgrim. Freeze. Hands up. We don't want any trouble. Just be a good boy and hand over the loaf and step away from the Merlot. There is, of course, a vast army of religious kitsch available when you go to Israel. There, you can buy your very own crown of thorns, certificate of authenticity included, or bottled water from the River Jordan, green and slimy, but apparently rather holy H2O. There are also endless spots where epic stuff apparently happened. Helpfully, when we went to Israel, we were assisted by a marvellous tour guide who never once even nudged us towards revering the place where Moses allegedly stopped for a cappuccino. But the warning most inconsistent with the spirit of the place was posted at the beach where tradition says Jesus cooked breakfast for weary, hungry Peter and his pals, the event described in the 21st chapter of John's Gospel. As I strolled up to the entrance gate, yet another prohibitive sign screamed a warning in forbidding red lettering. Holy place. No shorts. Rats. I was the only member of our group wearing this item of clothing, shorts. God doesn't apparently like them. Since they came almost down to my knees, I hoped for a grace dispensation, but I was stopped at the gate by a stern-looking chap who remonstrated with me because my knees were in view. In the end, he let me in, but only after I promised that if I met the priest who guarded the beach, obviously an attack priest, on the lookout for knee-flashing communicants, I would say that I'd been duly warned at the gate. I was then instructed to pull my shorts as far down over my apparently lust-inducing knees as possible, which I did. But then there were fresh dangers afoot. This adjustment seriously inhibited my ability to walk, so the prospect of tripping over my lowered shorts and breaking a limb, or three, marred my joy at seeing the place where Jesus provided Peter with a bumper catch. It also occurred to me that this sanctified shorts lowering might result in my marching onto the historic beach while sporting a very unholy builder's bottom. With difficulty, I managed the manoeuvre without injury or, as far as I know, indecent exposure. 
But how sad it is that visitors to this lovely place are greeted by such a stern prohibition, and this at the site where Jesus exuded such welcome, grace, kindness, and care to his weary, worn-out fishing friends. What first impressions do people get when they bump into me? Is mine a life that quickly drops a hint of good news? And what about our churches, which are, of course, collectively what we are individually? Do people feel genuine acceptance and welcome when they're around us, or do they sense that we're on the lookout for a better class of sinner? I watched the hurt in the eyes of a young couple who were barred from the beach because of their summery shorts, and I wondered if we in the church have sent people packing, and all in the name of cold, clinical, so-called holiness. Of course, hanging out with accomplished sinners will always get you into trouble, as Jesus most famously found out. There was a final irony. When we left, I smiled at the holiness sentry who had warned me so sternly about my clothing selection. I'd been so embarrassed and upset that my knees might defile something. I hadn't noticed that he was wearing shorts. My heart was beating wildly against my chest as I stepped into the crude, tin-roofed building. I stepped suddenly into a strange alien world. A song leader with wild windmill arms wrestled with a smile that threatened to possess his whole face. The congregation had eyes that were moist, and some of them had their arms raised up in the air. Hands up? Who were they waving at? Were they asking permission to slip out to the bathroom? One hand if you need to go a little, two hands if you need to go right now. It was strange. And then I noticed when everybody sat down, that there was a miniature swimming pool at the front of the church building. What was that about? It was then that the minister appeared, resplendent in a long black gown, with fishing waders up to his thighs, an aquatic Dracula. Now another man joined him down in the water. Suddenly, the Reverend Dracula grabbed the hapless guy and pushed him under the water. He'd been baptised, and I'd had enough. I fidgeted through the sermon, made a mental note of how many people were desperate for the loo during the final song, and made a run for it. Sitting outside in my car, I decided Christians were crazy. I would have nothing to do with them ever again. And then I realized I'd left my coat in the church building. I crept back inside and immediately bumped into the youth leader. I have never seen so many teeth in a human head in my whole life. He invited me to stay for the afterglow. Afterglow? What was that? Did this crowd end their day by setting fire to old ladies? I walked in and joined the afterglowers. Dracula's victim, the baptismal candidate, approached me. Still wet, he shook my hand and got straight to the point. Hello, are you a Christian? I mumbled something pathetic and suddenly realised that I was not and I really wanted to become a Christian. These people had confused me, irritated me, but I had to know the reason behind their smiles. I told my still slightly dripping friend that I wanted to take a big step and become a Christian. His words chilled me. You have to go to the little room at the back. Horrors. Dracula would be back there in a room filled with stainless steel cabinets and glinting surgical knives. But in that little room, my damp friend explained the gospel without the aid of shringers or rubber gloves. Now it was 10 p.m. I was a Christian now. I stepped out into what I thought would be an empty church building, and then I saw them and heard the cheer. 
Every single member of that little congregation had waited to welcome me. With undisguised delight, they formed a long queue to the back of the building, and I slowly went down that line of love, hugged and affirmed. I had found the church, a welcoming church, and they were a million miles from my culture in just about everything they said and did. But they loved God. They loved one another. They loved me. They welcomed me. I was home. See you next time. Lucas on Life.